join me. We're going to start a brand new series today entitled The Problem of God. The Problem of God. And if you brought a copy of Scripture, I'd love for you to join me in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to read a little bit of this resurrection story, what all the hubbub is all about. Uh, It's going to be a great time as we, we jump into this. John chapter 20. We find the story uh, and the, the account of Easter. We, we find the account of uh, Jesus rising from the dead. And so I want to read a little bit of that scripture this morning, and then we'll, we'll dive into to some conversation and kind of introduce our topic a little bit there. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1, it says this, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and, they, and she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Now, uh, quick heads up as you're reading through this. This is the Gospel of John. John is writing this account, and John likes to refer to himself uh, kind of as the other disciple, and uh, he happens to slide in there. I don't know if you noticed it. He says, the other disciple, Oh, you know, the one Jesus loved. That one. That was the disciple that was there and heard. And he's writing the account. And he goes on to say, uh, verse 3, So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. Wink, wink. Elbow, elbow. And reached the tomb first. He bent over, looking into uh, the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, and as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from all the other linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, in case you forgot in the last two verses, they uh, also went in, and he saw and he believed. He saw and he believed. It goes on uh, to, to say that they did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary, she stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've they've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. I think this... We all can kind of relate to this. We all have things that occur in our lives, and we're not sure why it happened, but somewhere along the way, our life was saved. Somewhere along the way, it should have been much worse than it really was. Somewhere along the way, that bad decision should have made life turn out really, really bad, but it wasn't. I think there's a lot of times that things happen in our lives, and we're not sure, and we can't recognize Jesus in it, but he's still there. I think many of us can relate to Mary as well because there are things that point us towards God, but we're not sure who they're pointing us to. We have all of the feels. We listen to a song on the radio. We have a conversation. We watch a movie, and the waterworks happen, and something is stirred in our hearts, and we're not sure why or how and why it even got there and why we're having this reaction. We've got all of the feels, and we don't know why and what if maybe that's just Jesus at work in your life and in my life. 
and we just can't recognize him. I think we can all relate a little bit with Mary. Verse 15 goes on to say, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to the Father and you, to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Now Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he, what he had said and the things that had occurred. This is the first-hand account of what happened that Resurrection Sunday, that Easter Sunday morning. That's the account that we Read. In fact, all of Christian life, all of the Christian faith, all of many faiths hinge around this one story being real and being true and having really occurred. Now today we're, we're beginning a, a new series entitled The Problem of God. And I want to bring a message entitled The Problem of the Christ Myth. The Problem of the Christ Myth. Myth, Because for many people, we see the stories of Jesus, they read the stories and the accounts, and they equate it to the same as other mythological figures all throughout ancient history and folklore. And they look at Jesus and say, he wasn't really a man, he didn't really raise from the dead, maybe he didn't die on a cross, he's just a myth and a story, a story that's been sold again and again and again, and anyone who believes in it is just completely foolish. And I want to address that and talk about that. In fact, in this series, we want to look at many of the things that, that are problems for some people in coming to faith. Maybe you yourself in your faith journey before you came to, to trust Jesus with your life, there were some real questions that you personally had. There were some doubts that you wanted answered. There were some things that had rolled around in your mind that you had heard and just kind of wondered and concerned about that, that really that you had to wrestle with before you said yes to Jesus. Maybe you're at a point where you're not really sure about Jesus at all. In fact, you're here because somebody promised you free lunch and uh, you're ready for that free lunch and you're already thinking about how good that ham is going to be and you're, you're kind of already, already checked out. I, I want to I encourage you just to hang with me for a little bit. Because while you may not believe everything that I believe, I want you to know that this is a place where you can belong. You don't have to believe everything that I believe to come and be a part of this place. We invite you just to come and explore together. And that's really what we want to do in this series. We want to look at some of those things that people, when they think about, when they're honest, when they ask the questions, problems that they have with faith in God. And today we want to look at the Christ myth. Later in this series, we're going to look at things like evil and suffering. I would believe in a God if there wasn't so much evil and suffering. And if there was a good God, and if he is a good God, that everybody says that he is, then why is there so much bad things happening in our world? For many, that's a big problem. It's a big hurdle to come to faith. They just can't quite swallow that. For other people, maybe you're, you're in this boat. Uh, you have a big problem with hypocrisy in the church. 
People say they follow Jesus, but they live a totally, you know what it looks like on Friday night. You saw them at the bar. You know what they've been doing. You know what's been going on. And hypocrisy is so much, I would follow Jesus if it wasn't for the hypocritical Christians all around. And maybe you, like many others in this room, have a past church hurt. Welcome to the club. I think a lot of us have those. Why? Because nobody's perfect. We're not in pursuit of a perfect life. We are in pursuit of a perfect Savior, though. We are in pursuit of of a good news for us that sets us free. But there are oftentimes problems that we as people have that we need to address those things before we could really say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to follow this Jesus. And if that's you if, you, if I just described you a little bit and you're like, I'm a little skeptical, that's all right, I'm glad you're here. There were some things, and I'll be sharing some of my journey throughout this series But I believe that that God has you here for a purpose and for a reason. And I just want you to know this is a safe place to be, to learn and to grow, and even perhaps to ask some questions. In fact, uh, the idea for this series came directly out of a book that I've been reading entitled, oddly enough, The Problem of God. I didn't feel like there was much improvement that needed to be made on that title. I said, ah, I think we'll call the series that very thing. It's written by a man by the name of Mark Clark. He lives in Canada. Mark grew up as an atheist, completely against the Christian faith, thinking that it had no merit and no intellectual person could ever consider themselves Christians and still be intellectual. And he was on kind of a bit of a path to prove that out, to follow the evidence. And as he followed the evidence, he came up to his own conclusion that Jesus is indeed who he said he is, that Christianity has the answers that we're looking for. And while it's not perfect, and while there are still questions and a bit of a mystery surrounding some of it, he came to the conclusion that the evidence leads us overwhelmingly to believe that indeed God is who he said that he is. But he was willing to follow the evidence to get there. And I mention that because some of, uh, even today, The things that I relay and I share are coming from kind of excerpts from the book. I'm not going to stand up here and just read the book. I encourage you to go buy the book. If you're a person who has questions, if if you're a person who's kind of wondering and, man, you're kind of searching, you're on a journey, I encourage you to go pick up the book and read it for yourselves and do some of your own discoveries, some of your own research, and see where it will lead you as you do it kind of with, with all your heart. Now, as a church, kind of, all cards on the table. I, I want to give you kind of three statements that uh, kind of let, let you know kind of where, we're, where I'm coming from. Number one, it's this, that we believe that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. In case you were wondering, you weren't sure about it, no, we really do. We believe that Jesus was and is the Son of God. We believe that he lived as a man on this earth, dealing with the same human things that you have to deal with. He had to deal with bad hair days on a humid day, just like you got to deal with bad hair days on a humid day. Although not today, y'all are all looking on point today. Y'all look good. Good hair days for everybody. Right? Like Jesus had to deal with zits in the morning. Had to deal with them. Just like you and me and humanity got to deal with He had to deal with problem people who annoyed him. Had a lot of them people. Some of them were his closest friends. Can anybody relate? Right? Like, Jesus had to deal with those things. Jesus had to deal with the fact that he would get hungry, that he would feel lonely, that he would feel afraid. He had to deal with all of those things that you have to deal with. In fact, we know from Scripture that, that, that we learned that he was tempted in the same ways that you've ever been tempted. 
The only difference is he never sinned as a result of those things. Never messed up. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was a man, that he died on a cross, that he was buried in a tomb, and count it one, two, three days later, got back up, kicked Satan in the teeth, and said, what's up? I'm here. I told you I'd do it. And he's a living forevermore. And that's kind of what we celebrate today. We believe those things about Jesus. And, and I know I said it before, but we really do believe that all of Christianity hinges on this man. All of history turns a corner because of this man and his life. Now, not only do we believe that, but, but we also believe in the entirety of the scriptures. I believe that the entirety of the Bible is not about you and it's not about me. The entirety of Scripture is about Jesus Christ. We can trust it. We believe it's reliable. We believe that it's a story that everything in it helps point to and reveal this man, Jesus. While we can learn a lot of things in our lives from the Scripture, the Scripture isn't about your life. It's about Jesus. It's about Him being revealed. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time here, but I I just wanted to share that with you. In fact, next Sunday, uh, in week two of this series, we're going to talk about the problem of the Bible and how for many people, they look at this book as just an ancient document and they can't really trust it and rely it. Why would you build your life around some ancient history book that has no life and no meaning and no merit? And can we even trust it? Because there's all sorts of contradictions in Scripture alone. They say one thing here, and then they do something else, and this happens. Next week, we're going to dive into that and address that very problem, why we think we can trust Scripture and where the evidence is as it relates to the problem of the Bible. In fact, I want to invite you back next Sunday, regular service times next Sunday, 10 a.m., uh, so you got to wake up a little bit earlier than maybe you did today. Uh, you made it to the 11 o'clock way to go. Uh, but next Sunday, regular service times, 10 o'clock. And also next Sunday, special surprise, uh, we have a special guest worship team coming in from Pitt State, Christians on campus. They're coming in to lead us in worship next Sunday. It's going to be amazing. Don't miss next Sunday. It's going to be great. And we're going to tackle this topic. But for today... I wanted to be honest with you and say, listen, we really do believe everything in this scripture. And I know you might not believe that the Bible is trustworthy, but for today, can you just set aside those doubts and walk with us and honestly listen and allow today our conversation to lead us somewhere? Would you be willing to give us the benefit of the doubt on that? And we'll walk it through in more detail next Sunday. Here's the third thing that that we believe um, that, that, that we're well aware of as we kind of start our conversation today. And this is really where we're going to launch into some, some conversations as, as it relates to the problem of the Christ myth. We believe that not everybody chooses to believe. In fact, today, at the end of the day, you may walk out of here not having changed your mind about Jesus at all. And that's a choice that you get to make. And we are okay with allowing you to make that choice. It's not our desire. In fact, we believe that Jesus is a big deal and he'll change your life and things amazing, that that there's something to be said about following Jesus. We believe really in this, but at the end of the day today, you may not be at that point. That's really okay. You can still steal. You may still 
grab one of our pens and walk out the door. You can take a handful of mints on your way out. It's really okay. Even if you don't come to the same, because we know that not everybody chooses to believe, but everybody who believes did make a choice. Did make a choice to follow the evidence all the way through. No. For many people, there is this idea of the Christ myth, the problem of the Christ myth. Maybe in college, you uh, have been told about this, how you can't trust Jesus because he's just another myth and legend. You can't trust, he's just another story that his early disciples and his fans, they were all fanatic, they followed it. You can't trust it because they just made the whole thing up. And, and really this idea of the Christ myth has been made most popular in a recent documentary, video documentary called Zeitgeist. And there are several other videos out there, documentaries out there, writings about this, because this is not a new argument. This has been going on for centuries. In fact, it kind of has a groundswell, and then it goes away for a while. And another groundswell, and then it goes away for a while. And uh, I think roughly about 10 years ago, there was a new groundswell that started coming, and it's kind of catching a second wave of people who look at Jesus and say, yeah, listen, there are too many parallels to other mythical figures in ancient folklore and stories that parallel exactly that of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is just another myth, another good story that people tell and perpetuate. In fact, some of their claims in the Christ myth kind of could be summarized in this way. Here are some of the claims that they say are parallels between Jesus and these other ancient myth, mythological figures. That 12 disciples, a lot of those mythical figures, they had 12 disciples. They were born of a virgin on December 25th. They had magi that came to their birthplaces after, uh, after following a star in the east. That there were miracles done. Walk on, one of them walked on water. Some fed many people. They all had disciples, and many of them were beheaded. They were crucified, and after three days, they all rose again. Sounds really similar to what we believe about Jesus, doesn't it? The problem is that when you look at those things and you hear those things, you have to understand that there's a a primary point in our lives in, in anything that you do. You have to be willing to search it out and go back to the very original of any one story, of any one source. You have to be willing to go go back to it. Now, many people who have written off Jesus and said, he's just, nope. The problem that I have is that Christ is a myth. Many people do so because of one of three reasons, likely. People who choose not to believe. People who choose to say, nope, I'm not going to believe in Jesus. It really comes down to, to typically three things when it comes to the person of Jesus. Number one, they like to say that Jesus never actually lived. Unfortunately, there is no proof to say that Jesus never lived. There is overwhelming historical evidence that Jesus indeed did live. In fact, no thinking person could actually look at the data and think that Jesus didn't exist, because he did. Historians, it's true, continue to debate things like the nature of Jesus. People still debate the exact date of his birth. They debate what he did and what he taught. But they all, every historian with any level of credibility, all unanimously agree that he indeed existed. In fact, H.G. Wells, a writer and historian, famously summarized this consensus this way by saying this, and I quote, I am a historian, I am not a believer. 
But I must confess, as a historian, that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of all history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Doesn't believe, never did believe, but he came to a conclusion after following the evidence that Jesus indeed did live. There are at least 10 first century historians and writers outside of the Bible now that mention Jesus of Nazareth by name. Some of those historians were Jewish. Some of those first century writers were Roman. And most of them were not friends of Christ in Christendom. In fact, one such man was a man by the name of Josephus, a first century writer who lived the same time that Jesus lived. And he writes, and, and I quote, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affections for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. Not really a follower of Jesus, not a disciple. A first century historian verifying Original source, he really did live. So the reality that people would say, I can't believe in Jesus because he never really existed, well, that's just malarkey. It's not true. It's not true. Sounds nice, but it is a little shaky when it comes to actual facts. The second claim that a lot of people make in terms of why they don't believe in Christ is this. They say that the resurrection couldn't have happened. That somebody who is dead can't come back to life. And I would agree, based on most funerals, that's unlikely to happen. It doesn't happen very often, that's for sure. But that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen and it never did happen. I want you to think about this. That every single one of the disciples died because they claimed this to be true. They claimed it to be true. They lost. They were crucified. They were hung on crosses upside down. They were beaten. They were exiled. They were beheaded. They lost their life because they said, I saw Jesus raised from the dead. He was dead. He put him in a tomb. Three days later, he got up. He appeared to us. He appeared to them. He showed off to over 40 of us. And then we saw him go up in the sky. He is the Messiah. He did raise to life. Now, here's the deal. And we're going to kind of talk about this a little bit next week too, but it's worth mentioning here. The disciples, they lived in a small town, in a small community. Think about Fort Scott where we live. Small community. If somebody started perpetuating that they were dead and alive again, there would be plenty of people around to either verify or call them on it. Wouldn't they? You wouldn't let somebody brag that they did something when you're like, dude, you didn't do that. Our kids don't let other kids get away with stuff, do they? No, that's not what happened. No, 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 I saw it. That's not what happened, right? And you've got like seven people on the playground to tell you exactly what they saw, right? Because nobody lets you get away with anything. You've got loving grandmothers who would drag you by your ear and wash your mouth out with soap before they let you tell too many more lies. The same thing is true of the early disciples. How could they perpetuate such a lie, such a scandalous thing like this man was dead, but now he's alive again? And they gave their lives 
for it, because of it, refusing to deny what they believed and what they saw and what they experienced. That's pretty crazy, pretty scandalous. While I can't fully understand it, it doesn't mean that it can't happen. In fact, when you look and you prove and you walk through the evidence, there's so much evidence as it relates to why and how we can trust that. In fact, there was an atheist by the name of Lee Strobel who was also on a quest to go and disprove the fact that Christianity is anywhere real and worth following. And as an atheist, he took up the thesis that the resurrection never happened. There's a book about it uh, that he wrote. There's a movie that came out uh, maybe a year or so ago called The Case for Christ, where you follow along on his journey trying to disprove that the resurrection ever happened, and he can't because it's true. Yeah, but pastor, that doesn't happen today. People don't get up from the dead. You're right. It really doesn't happen very often. And it would be a really weird funeral if it did. Right? Grandma just pops back up. Hi! Right? Like, whoa! (laughs) Kind of trip us all out. When I was in high school, I had a friend, uh, and he was dating uh, this one girl, and uh, she happened to struggle with diabetes. She was on a lot of medication, insulin, all the time. And uh, one day my friend called me in a panic because he had stopped by her house uh, to see her and she was passed out on the floor. She had slipped into a diabetic coma. I said, did you call 911? Yeah, they called 911. I was like, all right, I'm coming. Ambulance got her, took her to the, took her to the hospital there. And uh, after doctors did some things, they worked, they did some testing, they did all these things, they said, listen, she's not there anymore. She is dead. She has died. Several of us were in the waiting room praying. Her uncle, who was a pastor at the church at the time, on staff at the church at the time, friend of my father's, he comes in to uh, the room. He walks in. He stands there with all the doctors. He's hearing the reports, hearing what they're saying. He says, "Um, thank you for for your opinion, but we tend to believe that God is a miracle-working God. We're going to pray for a miracle. Started praying over her, praying over her. We're... Hundreds of people are by this time praying for her. They said, but you don't understand. She's dead. She's not here. She has died from this diabetic coma. But God healed her. God brought life back into her. To this day, she graduated high school with us. Uh, she's a good friend of my sister's. She lives in Orlando, Florida with her husband and beautiful daughter, pastoring a church in Orlando, Florida. I'm telling you, Jesus is the real deal. I've got a friend, Dr. Dr. Hughes, he and his wife, Virgine, who recently went on to be with the Lord, uh, were missionaries in Papua New Guinea back when Papua New Guineans only wore loincloths and ate people. Like legitimately, cannibalism was the real deal, the way they survived. And they felt a call of God to go to this place that had never seen white people before. And they had this call on their life, and they went to be missionaries in Papua New Guinea. And in their book, The Last Arrow, Uh, they write and tell several miracle-working stories, eyes healed, ears open, all sorts of things. But they tell a story of a young girl who had died, a young infant girl died. 
And I think the, if I remember the story correctly, um, the parents were uh, high-ranking officials in that particular tribe. And they got news of a white man healer who was preaching about another man, Jesus, and who would raise people who raised up himself from the dead. And they had heard. And so they went and they traveled. And this girl, by the time the Hughes got to where this girl were, she had been dead, I kid you not, for three days. Dr. Hughes said he had never prayed for somebody to come back to life, much less somebody who's been dead three days. Gathers around, prays, speaks life. Everybody's watching. I remember him telling me uh, that the thoughts that were going through his head as he's praying, <laughs> Lord, if this doesn't work, we're next. <laughs> like, 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 oh my gosh, everybody's, what, what is happening? And he just prayed a prayer of faith, prayed over that little girl. Eyes open, starts to breathe, and she's raised back to life. I, I'm not making it up. You go read it in the book. Got a cell phone number. We can call him if you want. Now, there are thousands of churches in Papua New Guinea, pastored by people who are there, whose lives have been forever transformed. They help translate the Bible into their native language. I'm telling you, there's a move of God in Papua New Guinea, and it starts because somebody has willing to believe that Jesus is who he said that he is. Why? Because the resurrection really did happen, and Jesus really is alive, and he's still at work today. The third reason a lot of people have a problem with Christ, and this is really where the Christ myth hinges a lot of it, is on these parallels between the the Greeks and the ancient Romans and the Egyptian folklore, all of these others that have gone before, these other mythological figures throughout stories that have been told that parallel that of Christ. And they say, listen, those all are so similar to Jesus' story, we can't believe Jesus' story because all of those stories happened before Jesus showed up. So they just wrote about those stories to mimic those stories. And so you can't trust that Jesus is really who he says that he is, that Christ is no different than the other mythological characters. In the book, Mark Clark, he kind of sets it up and he says it like this. He says, the first proponent of the myth rarely, if ever, do one of the major things that good historians do. In other words, people who believe that Christ is just another myth because of all of these other parallels, they don't really do this one thing. They never go interacting with the primary sources that write about these things. For example, he says, if you write a university paper on Romeo and Juliet, but you never quote Shakespearean texts themselves, only citing secondary sources or papers written about Shakespeare, you will likely get a failing grade. The primary sources that need evaluation in our case are the Gospels themselves, and the ancient texts that contain the myths of people like Horus and Attis and Mithras and the other, Greek, other figures. Yet when you read the books or you watch the films like Zeitgeist about the Christ myth, it quickly is apparent that the authors and the filmmakers have not interacted with the primary sources at all. They're simply citing modern authors who agree with their conclusions. Now I want to take one of those and walk you through those parallels and show you the evidence uh, as to why those aren't real parallels anyways. 
So when you look back at the original source, let's just take Horus. He's one of the oldest, most popular of um, those characters in each of these Christ myths. Great Horus, this ancient uh, mythological uh, figure. Some would call him a, a god. But these stories that, that are really significant in Horus all came from ancient Egypt. That's where these came from. Now, their claims that parallel Christianity are, are this. They claim things like Horus was born of a virgin on December 25th. They claim he was born in a manger. They, uh, they say that three kings followed a star in the east to his birth. They say that he was a child teacher by the age of 12, that he had 12 disciples. He was a fisherman. He was crucified between two thieves, and then he was raised from the dead after three days. Those are the claims in all of these films and documentaries that they say about Horus. Therefore, those are exactly like Jesus, and they sound exactly like Jesus. But when you go back to the source, when you go back to the original stories told in ancient Egypt about Horus, here's what you really find. Are you ready? I'm going to kind of go through these at somewhat of a a healthy pace. Where they say he was born of a virgin on December 25th, the problem is, number one, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. It's all right. Christmas can still be December 25th. It would be all right. But we don't really know exactly when Jesus was born. But we know that it's not December 25th. But they say, well, he was born, Horus was born just like Jesus, December 25th. Ergo, they're the same. Well, not really. They also say not only was he born on December 25th, but he was born of a virgin. The only problem is when you go back to the original source and the earliest writings uh, from the Egypt, ancient Egypt about Horus, you discover that uh, the mom of Horus was named Iris. And the dad was named Osiris. Now the dad died, was chopped into several pieces, and scattered abroad. The mom, Iris, grabbed all of the the chopped up pieces of Daddy O, grabbed them all together, hovered over his severed phallus, and then conceived. That's how the story goes. Not quite the same. Angel shows up, virgin automatically is with child, and boom, gives birth to a son. Not quite the same at all. Close, but not really that close. They say that he was born in a manger. There is no evidence in any of the stories that he was born and placed in a manger. They say things like three kings followed a star in the east to his birth. The only problem is that no one spoke of the typology of three kings following a lead store in astrology until the 19th century. And as Christians, we understanding from reading scripture that we don't know how many kings showed up. We only assume that there were three kings because they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Therefore, three gifts, three people. Makes sense. Unfortunately, it's not true. And those kings who followed the star from the east didn't show up at his birth. They didn't get to the the scene to meet Jesus until he was two running around in a diaper loincloth, playing with fire trucks and such, right? Like, like that's when they showed up. He wasn't, they didn't even show up at his birth. But they claim that it's the same thing. And it's not. The evidence doesn't bear it out. They say that he was a child teacher by 12. Again, no evidence. They say he had 12 disciples. He was a fisherman. He was crucified between two thieves and that he was raised from the dead after three days. Unfortunately, in most stories of Horus, he doesn't even die at all. 
And the evidence shows that there is only one questionable story in which Horus even dies. And in that story, he's cut into pieces by an enemy, thrown into the water. And then the resurrection parallel is that uh, it is super flawed at best. Because they say that because he was scattered into pieces, thrown into the river, the way he resurrected was that a crocodile came and just fished out all of the pieces. So no longer in the water, just with the crocodile. Not quite the same, is it? So when you go back and you look at the actual sources of these claims that, oh, these are all these myths line up with the mythology of Jesus. The only problem is they don't. They don't. And if you follow the evidence, the problem of the Christ myth isn't really a problem. It's a choice. And the question is today, are you willing to choose to follow the evidence to discover truth or are you trying to find evidence that conveniently fits your version of truth? Listen, it's a choice that you get to make. I I can't make that choice for you. I want to encourage you to follow the evidence. Why do I encourage you? Now, now in the book, Mark Clark, he, he goes through every single myth and mythological figure that they say parallels Christ. And he walks through and gives evidence and original sourcings that disprove each and every one of them. But I didn't want you to fall asleep, so I figured I'd just choose one. If you follow the evidence, follow the evidence and go where it's leading you. Don't lead the evidence where you want to go. Here's the deal. The promise of God is really simple. If you search for me, you will find me. Now there's a difference, friends, between asking questions to learn something and questioning things. There's a difference between asking questions and questioning things. When you ask a question, you're you're looking to learn and and your posture is to actually seek information. When you question things, all you're looking for is an argument, trying to disprove something. Jeremiah echoes the same sentiment in Jeremiah 29 and verse 13 when he says, when you come looking for me, you'll find me. Yeah. When you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. God's decree. God's decree. I'll turn things around. I'll bring you back to the countries that you got driven from. God's decree. I'll bring you home to the place from which I sent you off into exile. You can count on it. In other words, the promise that God gives to you is that if you will posture your heart in a way that says, God, I actually want to seek and find, he says, you'll see it and you'll find it. If you really want to grow, if you really want to examine, if you really want to ask the questions so that you gain some understanding, God says, I'll meet you in that point. You will find me if you start looking, if you start seeking me with your whole heart. Friends, I, I beg of you, please begin to search for God with your whole heart. Those of you that are skeptical, those of you that have doubts, those of you that might even say, I'm a bit more of an atheist than I am a believer. I'm really glad you're here. But my heart and my prayer for you is that you would just for a minute say, God, I want to see you show yourself to me. 
And I believe the promise of God is that when you do, he will. Jesus wants to move from being a myth in your mind to becoming the Messiah that masters your life. That's the invitation today. Are you willing to allow Jesus to move from being a myth in your mind to being the Messiah who masters your life? He wants to come and have a real, personal, one-to-one connection and conversation with you, just like he wants to do it with me. Jesus didn't come to be a myth that we read about. He rather came to, to help finalize the masterpiece that is your life. You were created on purpose, with a purpose. God loves you. He calls you his masterpiece. He is the one, the master craftsman, who is ordering and fixing and arranging and and kind of been dropping hints in your life and trying to give you clues along the way so that you can discover him. He is the one who's trying to get your attention. That's why you're here today. Let him in. Let him in. Get to know him. Drop your guard just a little bit and give him some space. And if you do, he will show himself to be true. I believe that God, by his grace, has been using these mythological stories. I believe he's been using ancient folklore. I believe that these things have been able to be woven into the human fabric and our story of humanity. Not because... God's trying to create a parallel or he's worried about parallels that contradict. No, I think that these things, by God's grace, have been woven into our lives, not to contradict, but to point us to. To give us some language to understand what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to have a Savior? What does it mean to follow somebody who raises up from the dead? And all of these things, history and culture and poetry and art, and music, and the metaphors that surround us, and the earth itself, I think all of them begin to point us and to give us clues and to help drop some things along the way that help us see Jesus clearly. I think that's what it's been about. And today, Jesus invites you, and he invites me. He invites us to the table. In fact, today as we get ready to end our service, we want to take communion together. All through the Christian faith, when we take communion, we refer to it as coming to the Lord's table. So I'm going to invite the ushers, those that are helping to serve communion, to move now and to begin to do that. Friends, when the tray comes around, there are two cups in each slot. The bottom has the bread. The top has the juice. We tried it the other way around. It just was a mess. If you take both those cups, hold on to them, and then once everybody has received, uh, the elements will, will partake together, okay? But I think Jesus is inviting you and he's inviting me to come, thank you, to the table. Jesus is welcoming you just like he welcomed his disciples to the table. See, when we take of communion, we're remembering that day where Jesus gathered with all of his disciples in a room. They gathered around the table. He took some bread and says, this bread represents my body. It's about to be beaten and broken for you. Every time you eat bread together, I want you to remember what I'm about to do on the cross. He took 
some wine. We use juice because it's safe for everybody. Took some wine, blessed it, and says, this represents my blood, which is about to be poured out on this cross for the forgiveness of your sins, the sins that you've committed. I'm about to pay the price so that sin doesn't have to rule and dominate your life. Instead, you can be free. I'm going to do that for you. And every time you drink from the cup, remember, remember what I'm about to do. See, the crazy thing is around that table, there were people who loved Jesus. They were his biggest fans. People like John, who says about himself that he was the one Jesus loved. Around that table, there were people like Judas, who in just a few moments would leave that table and go betray this teacher. Turn him into the most hated enemies who have been looking for a chance to kill Jesus, capture him. He goes and he sets it up and betrays them and gives them that opportunity. He was around that same table. Also around that table was a guy by the name of Peter. Peter who, in just hours later from that meal, before the rooster crows and the sun begins to peek through on that Friday morning, would absolutely deny that he even knew the man Jesus, but yet he was sitting at the table too. He was sitting at the table too. See, because Jesus invites people to the table who knows that they can't do it, who knows that they're going to mess up, he knows that they're going to make mistakes, he knows that they're going to turn their back on him, and he knew that every single one of them around that table, the minute that the sky turned black that Friday afternoon, and he took his last breath, they would all scatter in fear and hide. He knew that about them. But he said, come to the table. Come to the table. I know, I know, I know, I know. You're not, you're not, you're not going to believe it all. Just come to the table. I know you're going to totally go screw it all up. Just come to the table. I know, I know, I know. You're going to want to go partying on Friday night. Just come, come to the table. I know. Just come. To the, I know you're dealing with some things. Just come to the, come to the table. Come on, come to the table. I want to tell you what I'm about to do for you. Just come to the table. Around that table was a guy by the name of Thomas also called Didymus. We call him T-Diddy. Thomas was one of those that when Jesus raised from the dead and he showed, Jesus showed up to the disciples and he's like, hey guys, I'm back. Look, here's my hands. Check it all out. I'm back. I told you. You didn't believe me, but I'm here. I rose from the dead. I beat it. We won. We're, this is it. This is happening. Thomas wasn't there. And when the disciples told him, Thomas, you gotta, you gotta check it out. You can read it for yourself in John chapter 20. And they're like, Thomas, you, you don't understand. Jesus came back. We saw him. His hands, it was there. It was here. His beard, his face. It was, it was great. We, he was here. We saw him. Thomas was like, nah, nah. I don't believe you. Y'all a bunch of liars. Peter, you too. Yeah, no, uh Unless I put my hands where his nail prints were. Unless I see him with my own face. Unless I hear his voice with my own ears. I'm not believing it. I'm not going to believe it. That guy. That guy was at the table too. Why? Because Jesus welcomes all of us to his table. Doesn't matter if we're perfect. Doesn't matter if we got it all together. Doesn't matter our past. It doesn't matter our failures. Doesn't matter our brokenness. And it doesn't matter our questions and our doubts. He says, you get to come to the table too. Because I'm dying for everyone. 
And I want you to know why. That's why we take communion. Because we all have been invited to the table. Thomas, in John 20, we read it where Jesus shows up again to the disciples when Thomas is there. Thomas is like, Lord, I mean, am I dreaming? Like, are you really here? I I doubted. I I didn't get it. I I questioned it. I, I wasn't sure. She's like, no, Thomas, it's me. Here, touch me. Touch the hands. They're real. Thomas did. And when he saw the evidence, Jesus was no longer a myth. He was his Messiah. He was his Messiah. He fell to his knees and says, Lord, my master, I believe. Today, you may have walked in here and Jesus was just another myth in your mind. But I believe that as I've been speaking, God has been softening your heart, giving you a few answers, and inviting you to the table, knowing full well the doubts that you have. And something inside of you is saying, I don't have it all figured out, but I'm willing to admit that he's the Messiah, that he is who he said he was. And I want him to begin to master my life, set it back on course and on pace. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? Before we partake of these elements, I want to ask you that question. Are you here today and you know you do not have a relationship with the Messiah? You do not have a relationship with Jesus, but you want to have one. You want to to leave behind the myth and you want to begin to follow the man. If that's you, you say, today I don't have all my answers. I still got some questions. I know I haven't been perfect. I know I'm not where I need to be with God, but I want to put my faith and I want to follow Jesus. If that's you, would you just slip your hand in the air right now? Go ahead, put your hand in the air and say, Pastor, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow after him. Go ahead, put your hands up in the air. We want to pray for you. We're not going to make you move from where you're seated. Thank you so much for that hand. Thank you so much for that hand. Thank you so much to say, yes, I want to follow him. I don't have all the answers. I don't know it all, but I want to follow him. Friends, can we pray this prayer together? Say, Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus asking you to accept me at your table. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins through your blood from the cross. I believe that you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the Savior of the world. And I put my trust in you. Be the master of my life. I love you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.